The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. Welcome to the show. Before I get to today's guests, yes, there are two of them. I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of former Secretary of State George Schultz, who died recently at the age of 100. Secretary Schultz was a huge proponent of a carbon dividend, which he actively advocated for, saying that we needed a, quote, climate insurance policy. A driving force behind the Montreal Protocol back in the day, he noted, there were ozone skeptics back then, just as there are climate skeptics now. But we all agreed that if what some scientists feared were to happen, it would be disastrous. So we took out an insurance policy. Sounds pretty smart to me. Today, I'm pleased to bring you two interviews. Both of my guests are newish members of the spokesperson team, and I'm a little obsessed with both of them, but not in a creepy way. Nicole Kirchhoff is the owner of Live Advantage Bait LLC, a marine fish hatchery producing marine bait fish and marine food fish in South Florida, where she's from. She's also a mother, a scientist, and a board member with the American Water Security Project, which you heard from early on in season one. Casey Hirschman is a chemical engineer who has spent her career working in the oil and gas industry in Houston, Texas. She loves backpacking, climbing, traveling, and is passionate about protecting the planet she loves through fiscally conservative solutions that also protect, protect American industry from overregulation. And now, my conversation with Casey Hirschman. Welcome back, listeners. I'm super excited to be joined from afar today by one of our newest spokespeople, Casey. Hi, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So listeners, Casey has a very unusual work schedule where she's two weeks on and two weeks off. So you're in your two weeks off period right now. Yes, correct. So Casey is a chemical engineer um, and she works in fracking. And I just thought this would be a really good opportunity. I know that we hear the word fracking, which is short for hydraulic fracturing. And I think people generally have an idea that it's good or it's bad, but maybe don't even really understand what it means. So I thought you could kind of give us the fracking 101. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. Why is it important to the energy industry? And then what is your role as a chemical engineer in that process? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad to get to talk about this because I realize in a lot of my interactions, a lot of the, I guess, fears and concerns people have about fracking really stem from a lack of understanding of what is going on and the actual real science behind it. And a lot of things people worry about aren't necessarily even possible with the way that fracking is done. So, um, for example, a lot of people's fear about contaminating groundwater and things like that. So with fracking, they drill, you know, very, very far down into the ground. So much, much deeper than any of the kind of natural aquifers or drinking water or anything um, is where the shale lies. And then 
So when you so, say like really mm-hmm. deep down, is it like a mile? Is it less than a mile, more than a mile? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember what our wells are at. I think they're maybe 10,000 feet. I would have to check on the, the depth. But it's pretty deep. Down. It's yeah. pretty deep, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, yes, yeah, like, I, I don't know. What is the conversion of feet to miles? I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but very deep. I right? know I learned that in elementary yeah. school, and then I promptly forgot it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what all our uh, our cheat sheets we had on on our tests in college. So I never had to memorize that stuff. But um, anyways, so yes, just much deeper than where our natural aquifers sit, which are you know much more, more shallow. Yeah, yeah, and um, so what happens is they drill the well, and then fracturing hydraulic fracturing is a newer technology newer it's not that new but as far as the lifetime of drilling oil and gas goes it's new um traditional wells are pretty much just vertical they go down and you know there's a little incline whatever but with fracturing you drill down and then you go horizontal and you do horizontal drilling for um a substantial footage of lateral and so the thing though with shale is it's so tightly packed. The formation is so tightly packed that oil can't get out normally, essentially. Like it can in vertical wells, the, um, I guess, porosity of the rock is such that it's able to be produced um, with minimal, I guess, extra effort after drilling. But fracturing, they set off after you drill the well, you go in with these um, like gun strings, essentially. And they go down, and there's a detonation that kind of fractures the rock a little bit. And so um, after that rock is has those uh, small fractures all the way throughout the lateral, they go down and they pump um, propent or basically a sand and water combination. And there are different types of completions if they use different chemicals or whatever. But the idea is you want to hold those fractures open. So the sand gets pushed. You use really high pressure to push the sand up into these fractures to hold them open so that the oil is able to flow out and you're able to produce the well. Okay. So when, and when you say it's new, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, remember that in like 2008, I was Mm -hmm. working on a climate change bill for my boss Mm -hmm. and that one of the opponents of the bill was the agricultural industry. And they were opposed to the bill because they use a lot of natural gas for their feedstocks. Mm -hmm. And they were afraid that the price of natural gas was going to go up. And this was before we knew about Marcellus Shell. Is that the name? Marcellus Shell. So mm-hmm. anyway, they, this was before I feel mm-hmm. like we had our, our natural gas boom in the U S mm-hmm. and so it was, that was like the big talk, but now it feels mm-hmm. like after fracturing that the U S is a much bigger natural gas producer, that that technology was kind of a game changer for us mm-hmm. in the production of natural gas. It certainly was. Yeah, there's uh, the shale tends to produce a lot higher uh, percentage of gas to oil. So there's, you know, gas to oil ratio found in different plays, different basins. So um, 
yeah, fracturing, or at least in the U.S., has produced a lot of natural gas. And you saw the price of natural gas just totally plummet right. <laughs> because right. of that. Yeah. So you're a chemical engineer and you work mm-hmm. in this process. Do you, mm-hmm. I feel like you must uh, consider it safe. I feel like that's uh, one of the big controversies, right? Is it safe? Right. And there's different, you know, aspects of safety within fracturing. There's the, I guess, well, there's the more environmental safety side where people are worried, does it contaminate the water? Does it, you know, cause earthquakes, things like that. And then there's the personnel safety. So the people on location, um, what are the risks to them operating, um, during the fracking process, which is, I deal with more of the on location since I'm currently in a health safety environmental role, um, on location day-to-day operations, are we operating in accordance with the law, you know, basically OSHA, and then also beyond that, that what we deem necessary to keep guys safe um, beyond what is required in the law. and then there's a lot, a lot of research being done in the other areas about uh, induced seismic activity, um, uh, other aspects, I guess, that are more environmental. But um, on a day-to-day safety for guys on the ground operationally, the biggest concern is the pressure. I mean, you're operating at like 10,000 PSI running down hole. So you have depending on the size of the job and the rate you're pumping, you have, um, you can have, you know, 15, 20 pump trucks essentially that are pressuring up this propent that's going down hole. And during that process, there is the potential of a, you know, a leak in the um, iron or something having high pressure leak. And if, someone was in the area, then it would cut right through them. So there's a lot of things in place. We have like a red zone that they're not, no one is allowed to enter except for basically like emergency tasks, like shutting in a pump or something like that. Um, While we're operating, there's not, you don't see the risk of like a blowout. Like you think about with Maconda or uh, Piper Alpha or anything like that, where you have a kick in the well, the, those tend to happen more uh, in, in not shale plays. So because- Right, I'm thinking about like coal, right? When you're mining for mm-hmm. coal, there have been plenty of accidents where like, I don't know the right terminology, but basically mm-hmm. it seems like the mine collapses or whatever and it traps mm-hmm. people who are inside right. and mm-hmm. can't get out. I feel like that's like an image I have in my head of, of coal mining, so. Yeah, yeah, and I think with, drilling people tend to think a lot about those yeah like oil shooting up out of the ground and all of that which you do have with more or you have that higher concern with more just traditional vertical drilling but with horizontal hydraulic fracturing sort of drilling because of the nature of having we're having to propagate open those fractures the oil isn't the chances of having a kick are much, much lower. And if they are, it's, you know, maybe a gas kick or something like that while you're drilling. Um, So you're really not likely to see those big, you know, oil spurting out everywhere (laughs) and whatever. And with fracturing, especially everything's going downhole. You have 10,000 pounds of pressure pushing down. 
so the likelihood of having some Something big scare right are low and not that it can't happen it's just a lot less likely of a of that to happen I guess now I mean fracking does get a a bad rap but I guess in my mind it's it allowed has allowed us to become natural gas producers in a way mm-hmm. that has made coal the kind of fossil fuel source that nobody's mm-hmm. using. You, know, you don't really hear people talking about building new coal-fired power plants anymore, mm-hmm. but people will develop new natural gas power right. fired power plants. Yeah, and that's you know I think something to keep in mind. There are different levels of bad polluters Mm -hmm. in oil and gas and coal is the worst, right? So natural gas has enabled us to move to a much cleaner form of energy. And it's not, you know, fully clean, like a total renewable, but it does offer us a huge line of sight to very affordable energy that is a lot better for the environment. And there are a lot of developing nations, like China is still pretty heavily reliant on coal. So getting a lot of those more emerging nations to use more natural gas and things like that um, does give us access to, um, you know, environmental solutions. I mean, not all the way there, right, but it will push us in the direction that we need to go. And, um, you know, I think it's important to remember that, that a lot of developing nations, oil and gas is the probably the fastest way for them to develop. Um, it's the most affordable, really easily transportable. So when you were talking about the environment, mm-hmm. that just, I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to not get to this, which is that mm-hmm. you are a really avid outdoors woman. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting pairing, right? You do this work that some people would consider, you know, bad mm-hmm. and, but you do it in a way, I mean, you're, you're doing it to make it better, right? You want to protect the people who are doing the job. And as we were mm-hmm. just saying, natural gas has a lot, you know, supplanted the worst of the fossil fuels. And it is a a bridge to making renewables more um, accessible and mm-hmm. affordable, but it's also key to um, getting other more emerging nations to be using more. And so I don't think it's a conundrum at all. I think it all makes total sense, but avid outdoors woman, and you have this unique schedule where you're two weeks on two weeks off. So it sounds like oftentimes in your two weeks off, you are taking an adventure and you're outside and you're doing something great. So what is something that you have done recently on the outdoor front that was super fun? Um, So unfortunately I have put, I I love backpacking, like uh, backcountry um, camping. And I've been nervous to do that recently with COVID because I don't want to be three days into a trek and then get really sick and have to come out. But, um, you know, I did take a long road trip through Montana and down to Salt Lake City, stopping at Glacier National Park, Yellowstone, um, just doing a lot of hiking along the way. And um, yeah, just, you know, mostly just long day hikes and things like that. Um, Do you do these trips alone or do you go with somebody? I 
I don't think I've ever done a backpacking trek alone. No, I, I'm a little too nervous about the risk of like if I oh, fell and broke my leg or something and then I want to have someone there who can help me. Um, you know, I enjoy being outdoors, but I wouldn't say I'm, I trust myself enough to fully be able to take on. <laughs> it never would have occurred to me that that would be something someone would do, but I have a friend who's a 19 year old daughter. This is her passion and she's doing parts of the Appalachian trail here on the Atlantic and yeah. she goes out by herself for like mm-hmm. three days. And she did this because it was in like January and it was really mm-hmm. cold. Right. And she, but she has all the gear and everything. And she yeah. has some special bat watch that if she mm-hmm. has an emergency, it sends a beacon and it mm-hmm. alerts her mom and it alerts security or emergency services and stuff. But I mean, that the, her daughter does, does this to me was yeah. like, wow. I mean, I, it, it would never occur to me to go in the woods by myself. Cause I'm a scaredy cat, but <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. It's uh it is probably confronting that. That's really cool that she does that. And yeah, there are certainly ways if you want to solo trek that you can be safe by having those kind of personal locating beacons and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, the outdoors community though, I'd say is the most friendly welcoming community there is. So and that's why I probably love it so much um, between backpacking and rock climbing that the people, there's no, oh, you're not experienced enough to hang with us. It's like we want anyone and everyone to just come enjoy what the what nature has to offer. And uh, being outdoors alone seems scary, but I think in the outdoor community, you're never really alone. Yeah. And I, and I think there's something to be said for what you just said. It's not, no one's looking at your resume while you're hiking. Mm-hmm. Right. And no one's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you are the last person hired. So you're the most junior. Like you don't get those sort of judgments. You're yeah. all out there to enjoy the beauty of nature. And, and so talk a little and, and listeners, Casey wrote an op-ed that we, we will get it placed at some point. <laughs> we might have to just tweak it and update it, but just kind of got caught in, you know, we, we had a very dramatic November, December, and then January. So the news cycle has been hard, but I have confidence it's going to be published. But in her op-ed, she talks about, or you talk about the, you know, balancing these two parts of your life. So Mm -hmm. you are, you know, passionate about the outdoors and conservation, and you also work in this, in the oil and gas industry. So Mm -hmm. um, just talk for the listeners a little bit about, what that is like for you kind of having these two sides. Yeah. Yeah. It it has been very confronting for me since I started working and became more and more outdoorsy, if you will. Um, Because yeah, there's these societal pressures and ideas about the oil and gas industry and it's the enemy and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I should be putting my, efforts and passion behind something that's going to save the planet. However, um, I guess there's the flip side of the justification of one, it's a lot easier to change things from the inside, right? Than forcing from the outside and this, that, and the other. And, and being inside to uphold regulation, to push change and ideas, things like that. And 
the other side that, you know, people forget how much money oil and gas pays to governments all over the world. And the, was it Land and Water Conservation Act Mm -hmm. is funded almost entirely by offshore oil and gas leases. And that's, I mean, billions of dollars a year that are funneled into our national parks and national monuments and uh, recreational areas that wouldn't be there if not for the money that the oil and gas industry brings in. And, um, you know, I think that has made me feel better about those things. And, you know, it's really easy to villainize something that you don't fully understand. So being on the inside too, you, you see these sides that maybe media doesn't portray. I remember in an internship, I worked at a different kind of company with an internship, but the guy was quoting, you know, this is how much money we made in revenues throughout the year. And then this is the amount we actually were able to take in because of how many taxes we paid around the world. And it was hundreds of millions of dollars of difference. And, you know, there are all these developing areas, Nigeria, Angola, Indonesia, places that oil and gas activity occurs, and they're required to build a certain level of infrastructure, educate and hire a certain number of nationals. And people don't think about that or see that a lot of times. The jobs that are being created (laughs) in areas where people might not have a lot of economic opportunity. Right, right. And like building the roads and the infrastructure and things like that, that, you know, otherwise probably a lot of these areas would just be burning wood or coal or sorry, coal, <laughs> coal or whatever. Um, and it, it's been good to kind of see that and learn that, that I, I wouldn't have learned that if I hadn't been in this industry and be able to try to educate my friends who are almost all in the tech industry and don't get the full picture, you know? <laughs> well, I do agree. There is something about working from the inside and, um, and also just finding the ways that you can be part of, you know, if there is going to be some sort of change being, mm-hmm. you know, that's how you get to be on the front line. And, mm-hmm. um, and I just love that you have found this balance in your life. I think it's so great. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and enlightening us on fracking. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm always happy to educate and share my experience. <laughs> Coming up next, my conversation with Nicole Kershoff. Welcome back, listeners. As promised, I have our spokesperson, Nicole, here to have a little conversation. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are pretty much the trifecta of a climate activist in my mind. You are a scientist you're a small business owner whose business relates to the uh, conservation of water and ecosystems, and you're a mother. So between those three things, how did you get to where you are today? Well, let's maybe start with the science. I'm assuming science is kind of like your long-term passion, right? Like maybe yes. one of those little kids that was always interested in science. Oh, always. Yes. You know, in the water, camping, kayaking, making forts in the woods, all that kind of stuff as a kid. So that led you to what, what was your, what is your scientific background in? So I have, 
I got a marine science and biology uh, degree from University of Miami. And then I got a master's degree in aquaculture from the University of Maine. And then I got a PhD in aquatic animal health, conservation, fisheries, and aquaculture at the University of Tasmania in Australia. Oh, my God, Australia. In Australia, I did. And it sounds far-fetched, but if you're going to get a degree in aquaculture or fisheries, it's one of the top schools in the world. There were 45 of us PhD students all at the same time, and it's like this little intellectual hub that you all feed off each other, and it was, it was really valuable. So I did you a lot of connections. <laughs> did you snorkel the Great Barrier Reef? Oh, I definitely did. My focus in Australia, though, was um, I did fish health and welfare with the southern bluefin tuna industry. So I worked on the cages, the big ranching cages in Port Lincoln, South Australia, for all of five years that I was there. Went to school for marine biology and then realized that you can make a living at this if you do aquaculture or fisheries. And so I started my business when I moved back from Australia in 2012. Um, 2013 is really when I started it. And um, we started in an industry that had never been established before, which is marine bait fish and aquaculture, which sounded really obscure. But economically on paper, it made sense if I could get the science to work. And that's because in the state of Florida alone um, – $275 million a year is spent on purchasing live bait to go fishing with. Wow. And all of it, 100% of it, is from the wild. Huh. So if we could aquaculture live bait, not only would it fill like a massive market gap, which is from the seasonality of bait fish and when you can't buy, get bait fish in the wild because of storms or inclement weather or just transportation issues, if you could just fill that market gap, Plus the gap left because we need to start conserving some of our base stocks. It kind of fulfills two niches. So you can do the economics. It would really help the whole industry from top down by having more bait for sale. But also you could start conserving the wild populations because there's an alternative source to keep the fishing industry going, That's which are the cultured bait. Amazing. I love that. So who are your customers? Well, it took us a long time to, uh, make this commercially viable. Like I said, the science really was not there. Um, so we started, I got a really nice grant from National Marine Fisheries to do some of the, the base work. And we started putting live bait in bait shops that had traditionally sold live fish. And we did some economics work to show that a bait shop that hadn't previously sold live bait could make an additional Twenty-two dollars to $30,000 a year just by having bait in their store. And it's not the bait that they're making the money from. It's the foot traffic. Right. So every person who comes in buys ice or beer or a fishing rod. or. So, so what is your research showing you about climate change right now? It's kind of taken a, a very interesting track over the last decade. So when I started my business, I thought we were just going to fill a market gap because of, like I said, not being able to catch bait because of seasonality or storms or whatever from the wild. But since then, a lot of the stocks of fish have been tanking in the wild. And so it sounds great. It sounds like, you know, demand's up. Your business should be super successful. But you have to remember, I'm selling to fishermen to go fishing. And it's become the coastal water in the state of Florida has become so polluted in some areas, people 
aren't wanting to go fishing or there's nothing to fish for. So like the um, red tide is bad for you, not just... Red tide, yeah, yes. Yeah. Red tide, I mean, it's killing the fish. People don't want to go out if you can't breathe in the air. We had here on the East Coast, we had in 2016 a microcystin bloom, which is a green algae that starts in freshwater. And when they released the freshwater from the middle of the state because of flooding concerns, it came to the coast. And when this algae gets stressed out, as it does when it hits the salt water, it releases this really nasty toxin. And that toxin not only was killing fish, we had some research animals out trying to figure out growth rates in the wild under different conditions. It killed $100,000 worth of my fish. Wow. It stopped the entire industry for fishing here in its tracks for months and months on end because it wasn't only not attractive to go fishing, it was not safe to go fishing. And, I mean, that could happen again. There's no reason why it can't happen again because we're still releasing water um, from the Everglades. So, like, the state of Florida is having a problem. It's kind of like becoming a bowl, like a bowl of water, where water that should be going into the Everglades instead is getting released into this bowl. And then the ocean is rising, so that's getting into this bowl. And it just keeps rising up and up and up on the coast, and the water is having nowhere to go. So we're flooding out. Our tides are huge now. We're flooding out a lot of the estuaries where some of the – sport fish should be having nursery grounds. We're flooding some of our mangroves. The water's becoming warmer, which isn't only bad for baby fish. It's also very, very attractive waters for bacteria to grow in. So we're having some nasty bacteria, not just for humans, but for animals. So, for example, like the sea turtles here, I talked to a sea turtle vet the other day, they're seeing more antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections on sea turtles than they've ever oh seen before. Um, and that's from the warm temperatures, but also, I mean, the state of Florida, the ground is like, it's sand and Swiss cheese-looking rock. So we have a lot of septic tanks, which are now, because of water levels rising in this bowl effect we have, are now underwater. So when you flush your toilet there is no filtering happening and it's going right into our estuaries, which is not only disgusting, (laughs) it's, it's impacting everything downstream. So like the antibiotic resistant stuff is, I mean, we take antibiotics. We wash our hands with antibiotic soap, especially now, especially now. And I mean, it's also impacting my business because we try to follow the BMPs, the best management practices. There are international standards for water that should be released, salt water, um, from aquaculture facilities. Our water in the state of Florida on the coast is so polluted at most times of the year now, we're bringing in water to our facility that has already far exceeded the standards for phosphorus and nitrogen. So we're having to clean the water before we even use the water, and I mean... We already released water cleaner than we brought in, but now it's becoming a a major problem. You know, it's interesting because I think when people who aren't living or they don't feel like they're living or experiencing climate change on the daily, 
they see, you know, a hurricane or they hear mm -hmm. about sea level rise and they maybe think a little bit more about the air, right? Air pollution. Right. But everything you're saying now about water, I mean, water is fundamental to life. It is. It and, is. And I mean, I'm a, so I'm a mother, like you said, I have mm -hmm. a, a 14 month old and a three and a half year old. And I, because I know a lot about this pollution and I mean, the septic tanks, let alone other things that we're putting on our water. There are times in the year where I, as much as I want to, don't bring my kids to the beach yeah. because I know that that beach is now covered in essentially raw sewage. I mean, we're finding live cholera in surface waters in part of the state. I mean, in the United States of America. States. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's, you can, you can literally put values to these things. Like more people are going to the hospital from cuts now than before. Mm -hmm. Antibiotic resistance is, it's costing us money through our healthcare system, but it's also costing us money in our food. So like our, because our wild fisheries are suffering, we're importing 90% of our seafood into this country. Yeah. And that's costing us all a lot of money. And even fisheries that we thought were quite healthy are now, we're having a really hard time managing them because the water temperature is rising. So for example, cobia used to be a southern fish. Well, the water temperature is rising. They're moving north. So now who manages them? Is it the South Atlantic Fishery Council who manages them? Is it the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Council who manages them? How do we manage this fishery? And when they're moving north, we don't know how to do population assessments because we weren't traditionally catching them in some of these fisheries. So how are we predicting their future population numbers? And then at the same time, if, if we have an uncertain future for some of these fish, shouldn't we be investing in regulations to maybe do aquaculture on some of these species so that we can reduce the pressure on the wild and still eat them without importing them? Right. Right. I did a tiny bit of work on um, the issue of tracing where your seafood is coming from about, it was almost 10 years ago. And I had a friend who worked at Oceana and they had somebody leave for maternity leave. And so she asked me to kind of fill in and I learned mm -hmm. just enough to not know enough. <laughs> but I remember that that was like a big deal for them that they would do these sample testing where they would go into restaurants and and sneak little samples of fish, sushi, whatever. And there was mislabeling yep. of, of seafood all the time. Oh, yeah. And then oh, seafood yeah. that says it's made, you know, caught in America or caught in Alaska or whatever, and it was really from China or, you know, they were really avid yes. about trying to trace where the fish were coming from. And I feel like that makes sense, right? Like, as moms, we know, you know, like, I like shopping at the farmer's market for my vegetables because I know that those yep. vegetables were grown within a 100-mile radius or whatever my market's rules are yep. for that. And so then when you're buying something and the label is wrong – that is, you know, it's just, or the label is deceiving, I guess I should say. Right. And I mean, and I don't know where the public conception about aquaculture went so bad, but I mean, one of the analogies I use is you go to a restaurant and you look at the menu, literally everything on there is farmed. The lettuce, the mushrooms, the chicken, mm -hmm. the beef, Yep. everything is farmed, the cheese, but then yeah. you get the cheese, then you get to the fish section and 
for some reason, people think that wild equals healthy and farmed equals bad. Why? Why for that particular food group? Because, for example, a fish can be caught in the wild in a super polluted harbor that has ships coming in from all over the world releasing bilge water with gosh knows what's in it and be considered wild, right? You could eat that with whatever it's eating. But then a fish could be farmed in a tank where we're doing tracing of the feed and we're cleaning the water and we know exactly what went into those fish and that's considered farm, but people would prefer to eat the bilge water fish. Not me, man. Kind of I want to eat your fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have to start getting a little bit of public awareness of, of exactly what this is. I mean, yes, there are some bad characters. There's some bad characters in every type of farming. I mean, we've all seen them on TV. <laughs> but there's some really good ones, and the good far outseeds the bad in most instances. And most people, like, we're... We rely on clean water for our jobs. Yeah. It behooves us to consider to continue having clean water. We're not going to pollute where we work. That's just not how a business runs. So I would like to end on a hopeful note. What can we and should we be doing? I mean, part of this is awareness, right? And that was part of why yes. I wanted to have you on. Um, so that listeners know that there is somebody out there who is <laughs> working on the side of good and, and, and I think, you know, could have a really big impact. But what do we do politically? Like, how do we get more people engaged and how do we save ourselves from ourselves? I, well, I think there's different <laughs> levels of I, I know enough about politics to know that it is way more complicated than I ever want to get into. Fish but, are way better than politics. Oh, fish are way better than <laughs> politics. But I mean, there's higher level politics about like caring who you vote for. I mean, we need people who not just uh, believe that climate change is happening, but believe that we can make an impact in adapting to our reaction to it. Like not just, you know, throw our hands in the air and say, well, it's just happening. I mean, we can, we can do things and we're also doing things that are making it worse. Like, these septic tanks, uh, releasing water where it's not supposed to be, um, you know, there's ways we can change the way we live to reduce our impacts on, on expert expediting this problem, like cholera. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, and, and so like on a local level, on a, on a level myself, I, I, for example, tried to trace where, the nutrients of where I live goes. So my house is on a septic tank because we don't have a choice to plug into public sewer. Well, I started getting involved in my local town council and said, why can't we have public sewer? And once my waste goes into the sewer, can the plant take care of that much waste? Are we overloading the plant downstream? And you know, if my local beach is closed, I don't just say, oh, shoot, my, my beach is closed. Well, let's do some research. Why is that wow, beach closed? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? And let's let's hold some people accountable. Um, I mean, a lot of this, the utilities, the water utilities are in trouble because we haven't invested them or money has been stolen that should be going to be invested in them mm-hmm. and being used for other reasons. So it, it might not necessarily be we need to spend more money. We need to spend the money that should be there on what it's supposed to be going right. towards. The priorities need to be rearranged and and there does need to be, you know, I think we've 
been very bad at investing in our infrastructure. People think of infrastructure mm-hmm. as roads, right? But it's so much more than that. And the water yes. infrastructure in our country is needs to be adapted to the climate realities that we face and the population demands that we have, especially in a coastal area, right? Where I forget right. what percent of the population of the U.S. lives on the coast, but it's a lot. And that's stressful. It's stressful. I mean, and, and we could put real money into these things now. And so if you really want to be fiscally conservative, we know exactly how much money is spent on, for example, recreational fishing in the state of Florida. It's $6 billion a year alone. Have you seen my octopus teacher? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I <gasps> I not only watched it, my three-and-a-half-year-old watched it with me, and he now wants an octopus as a pet, which I had to explain to him is a little more complicated. <laughs> it will spend all its time trying to escape, right? <laughs> it does. But, I mean, I, I love that movie, and we definitely have some broodstock fish at my farm who we've become attached to, who come to the surface to feed out of my son's hand, or they always are, like, more friendly and... I mean, it, any type of personal connection you, people can get to the ocean and the environment is fantastic. And that's a great movie if you yeah. haven't seen it. my <laughs> I watched it with my kids, too, as I mentioned earlier, older. And we all cried at the end. Oh, yeah. And one of my kids – well, I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But go watch My Octopus Teacher if you haven't seen it, listeners. And, Nicole, I really hope once – all of the crazy is over that I can come to Florida and we can have a little field trip and the the beaches will be open and you can introduce me to your favorite fish and we can actually meet in person. (laughs) Absolutely. I love that. Wow. Not one, but two guest interviews this week. Great job, Chelsea, as you had two really, really awesome guests this week. Appreciate Nicole and Casey for joining us this week on the EcoRight Speaks. I'm Price Atkinson, your producer here on the podcast. And just once again, thanks everybody for tuning in, downloading, subscribing, which you can do every single week with a new episode out every single Tuesday. Check it out. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, Of course, you could go to republicin.org forward slash podcast. We've got every single episode we've ever done right there. Of course, before we get out of here, I want to give a shout out to several new members who have joined on and are standing with us at republican.org this week. Wesley N. from California, Jan W. in Texas, Nelson T. in Kansas, Ben D. in Utah, and Lois S. in Florida. And those are just a few of the many who have signed on to stand with us at republican.org, which you can do, republican.org forward slash join. It takes all of seconds to sign up we don't spam you we just give you a lot of great information to consume each week and chelsea henderson's patented weekend review that you'll get every single friday Uh, but once again we thank you all for joining us this week we'll be back again with another guest episode and interviews next week with chelsea henderson but for her i'm price atkinson thanks to everybody have a great week have a great weekend wherever you are we appreciate your support thanks for listening thanks for listening to this week's edition of the eco right speaks podcast brought to you by the team at republicen.org make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader 